it's one of those stories that's got a little bit of everything for a, a little bit for everybody. And, and I know that you've heard this story before. I pray you listen to it with fresh ears. It won't be anything mind-blowingly new. It'll be something that will drive you back to understanding our need for Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. It'll be a story that, that looks at how Jesus articulates to some religious people how they should change in light of the grace of God. And I think he's talking to us as well today. And so if you would look in your scriptures with me, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. I'm going to give some background in verses 1, 2, and on. And our main text will be starting in verse 11. So let's just uh, start us off in a different way, though, before we read. Let's pray together, and let's ask the Lord to quiet our souls and to lead our hearts to worship him as his son Jesus ushers us into the throne room. Let's seek him. Father, it is so easy for us to rush to you, and as children, we are welcome. Just as Jesus welcomed the children to him and chastised the disciples for stopping them. But Lord, it is important for us to understand as adults that we are actually stepping into the presence collectively as the church. We are stepping into the presence of the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. The one who not only has brought all things into being but holds all things in his hand and at the same time, in the end, will bring all things to completion. And Lord, we know that that means for some that it means eternal life. Those who have been bought with the blood of Christ, who have repented and believed in the work and person of Jesus, your son. And it also means eternal destruction for those who do not know you. So Lord, we stand before you knowing your great power and your judgment and also seeing today your grace and your love as it's found in Christ. I pray that you would pierce our hearts with the truth of your word today and that you would change us more into the image of your son Jesus than when we first walked in and that we would love you because of it, that we would enjoy you in our experiential relationship with you. Help us to know more about you so that we might love you rightly and so that others might come to know you through us as you have given us the ministry of drawing them to you as we speak of the good grace of your son Jesus. Lord, we hope that you do a mighty work today in us and around us, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you want to have one main point for the day, I want to give it to you off the top, so be ready if you're writing notes. There's not going to be a lot of notes on the screen today. In fact, this one won't be on the screen either. I want you to write this down and just think about it. It's going to sound a little bit uh, maybe pithy, but it's not, all right? I want you to write it down and let me unpack it the rest of our time together. So, so here it is. This, you know this story. People call it the prodigal son story. The story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, I'm going to change that. We're going to call this the prodigal God story. And I want to say your main thesis like this. The prodigal God is throwing a party and everybody's invited. The prodigal God is throwing a party. Write it down. Don't look at me. Write it down. The prodigal God is throwing a party and everyone's invited. I want you to understand today through God's word that we're about to read that there is something great going on in the lives of every single believer. And there's something great happening in the cosmos as God brings people to faith and he brings them alive out of death into life, out of lostness into being found. And and, and the, the angels erupt in his praise. And that we are a part of that process, not because we deserve it, not because he needs us, but because he has chosen to use us in what he is doing. And not just use us, but he has chosen to welcome us into his family. 
prodigals, those who have run away and lavishly lived our life that was given to us for his glory, and we spend it on ourselves. And he has given us the fruit of salvation because of the work of his son Jesus, and he is calling us to something magnificent, and we need to remember that, remember what we're called to and called from, and what it costs to bring us here. And this story is going to help us. Let me set the stage for us. If you look back at chapter 15, where, 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 where uh, Luke is recording this, Jesus is with these disciples and tax collectors and sinners and a lot of Pharisees and scribes are hanging out. We talked about some of this last week in chapter 15, verse 1 of the Gospel of Luke. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now Jesus hears this and he tells them three parables in a row. I'm just going to read the first two. They're all pointing to the same thing. Look, chapter 15, verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. He goes on, he says in verse 8, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see what he's pointing to here, right? That the importance of reaching those who are unreached, the importance of finding those who are lost. And he's saying that it brings joy in the eternity. It brings joy in the lives of those who are connected with this person who has found those he was looking for. It brings joy in the lives of those who love him and are his neighbors. He's talking about us, church. He's talking about those who have already been found, who are his neighbors already, who are his family that he's brought in. He's saying that when one is found that was lost, we rejoice. And he goes on in verse 11. We pick up our story here. He says, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, you've probably heard this preached on a million times if you've heard it once, right? Not a million, maybe. You've heard it a bunch of times. You've heard this passage talked about, studied in your Sunday school group, studied in your small group. You've read it many times, probably as you read scripture. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard it preached on at least once. Uh, is that true for some of you in here? And some of you have not heard this story. So I've got something for you that haven't heard this story, and we've got a little bit of something for those of us that have heard this story, and we're going to talk about it. So I just want to kind of walk through this. Let me call it, the reason why I'm telling you that this is about a prodigal God is because the definition of prodigal that's not really used in this text at all is simply this wastefully lavish or extravagant. Wastefully lavish or extravagant. Now, I don't like that exact definition for saying the prodigal God, but it would say extravagant and lavish. Some might call it wastefully lavish. In fact, I think the older brother calls it that later in his own way. 
But God here is the one who is lavish. The reason they call it prodigal son is because the son who wanted his inheritance early, he goes to his father and he says to him, hey, you know what? I don't really care about you. I kind of wish you were dead so I could have my money. Would you mind if I had it now? That's basically what he's saying. And the father gives him his money and he gets his stuff together and the kid leaves and goes off and just blows the entire inheritance and just spends it lavishly in a wastefully kind of way and ends up in a really bad spot. Famine enters the land. He doesn't have any more money. He goes and works for a pig herder, which would be like the lowest of lows for a Jewish guy who thinks that's the dirtiest of animals, right? And, he, and he, he's, he's working with his pig herder, and he's saying, I just wish I could even eat some of the pods the pigs are eating, but nobody would give him anything, right? And this is where we kind of pick up this story. Now, before we go on, let me just say a few things. We like to think of this poor kid who took his dad's money and ran off and spent it, but we all fall into this camp before we meet Christ, every single one of us, before we come to know Jesus. We are no different than this guy. In fact, I would say it like this. We are all naturally proud and self-willed. We are all naturally proud and self-willed. All of us think we know better. It's not just when you're younger, right? You may understand you don't know as good as some people, but we still think we know better than most people. We all are self-willed. We are all about doing what I want to do. In fact, unless somebody comes with some really good reason that really just rings in your, your conscience or rings in your logic, you decide you're going to do whatever you want to do. It's not about listening to the Lord always. It's not about listening to what you think is right from Scripture. It's about what I want to do. That's why we dive into sin just like this guy did. We are naturally proud and self-willed. It doesn't even go away when we become believers because we still struggle with the inner sinful self, Right? We desire things from God, but we do not desire fellowship with God. That's what happens here. He wanted his dad's stuff, but he didn't want his dad. And we are no different than that a lot of the time. In fact, before we become believers, that's the only way we live. That's it. Isaiah 53, 6 says it like this, encompassing all of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's what it means to be a sinner that you hear in church language. One who has turned his own way. See, we are created in the image of God for fellowship with God. To be made in the image of God means to be in his reflection, which means that we are are meant to be staring into his glory, into his beautiful face, and that we are to reflect that back to him and to those around us. But the problem is, is we turn away and do our own thing, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, every one of us. And daily, this is a problem for us all. We constantly have to reorient ourselves back to the Lord. And just like this guy, this young kid, our pride and self-will eventually lead us to emptiness. He had nothing left. He squandered it all away, and he found no joy because he was not only hungry, he was destitute and had nothing and no one. And if you will remember back, those of you who know the Lord, to what it felt like as the Lord was drawing you to himself, and you recognized your need, and that all you were surrounded by actually did not give you what you needed. You felt destitute, you felt empty, you felt like you were without and you needed more. Many of us have that feeling and don't even recognize what it is and we keep trying to find it in things and in stuff and in everywhere except for the place we can truly find it, which is in the Lord himself. Our pride and our self-will eventually lead us to such emptiness. In fact, I would say sin can be simply defined, this sin is walking away from God, not giving him our attention, our focus, not putting our hope in him. That sin can be utterly defined as simply insanity, right? Look at this young guy. He had everything he wanted. 
He had everything he wanted. We'll see later in the story how much he had and how it was always at his fingertips. And yet he said, give me some money. Give me my portion so I can go and spend it. And he just squandered it all away. It's insanity. Why would you squander all that away and have nothing instead of being where you can have as much as you want continually? Instead, it's insanity. That's what it is, right? We, we were made for fellowship with God, and yet we try to find it in fellowship with other people. We find that, try to find that ultimate joy in fellowship with the, the pleasures of this world. We covet what everybody else has. We never get enough. We never have enough in our relationships. If we put our relational other person in the primary position of our lives, they never fully, fully can live up to what we have made a standard for them. It never, ever works. It's insanity. That's exactly what sin is. Romans 6, 20 through 21, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He's saying when you're enslaved to that sin, you, you, don't, you don't have to worry about righteousness. You're not worried about any of that stuff. You're just pursuing whatever it is that brings you joy in the moment. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Maybe you come in this place on occasion. Or maybe you go into some church gathering and talk to some religious person that's talking about Jesus, and what you feel is shame because of what you've done. Because you know that those things have not given you what they promised to give you. The relational things you've been endeavoring in that bring you shame in the long run, or the way that you spent money and now see that it's gone, and you can never get it back and use it for other things. You're ashamed of how you've lived and how you've done. Some of us are so prideful and so proud that we're not ashamed of anything that we've done because we think all of it was done with the best intentions. But we know what? We've heard it over and over again, and it's true. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? If it's not for the glory of the Lord, it is in sin. That's how you can do good things and not give God glory in them, and it is still sinful. Because everything is made to bring him praise and glory. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. In other words, for the one who serves just himself will receive what himself can fully give, which is sin and corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The prodigal God is throwing a party and everybody's invited. We're about to see how this works out. Look with me. Luke chapter 15, verse 17. Listen to the language. We're going to back it up here in a minute and read. Listen to the language. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The path to everlasting joy and fulfillment that this guy was seeking, that many of us have sought in our lives, the true path to everlasting joy and fulfillment is replete with repentance. If you don't know any other word today that we say here today that you're going to learn and you haven't been aware of it or you're not sure exactly what it means, you need a refresher in it, the word today is repentance. Repentance. We're going to break down what it means to be repentant. Verse 17 on, we understand this, that a biblical repentance always includes turning from sin. Look at verse 17 again. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before 
you. It's turning from sin. He's turning from that lifestyle that he was living in. He's turning from what he had ran off into. He's turning from all those things. He's turning away from them. Some have even said it, and I think they're right when they say it, that before we can ever come to God, we must first come to ourselves. Listen to that statement. Before we can ever come to God, we must first come to ourselves. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, before you can ever really turn to God, you have to come to the need in yourself. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He, he pricks your heart and shows you that what you've been pursuing cannot, will not, has not truly satisfied you, enlightens your mind, illumines your mind to understand that, and then in that need, you recognize that what you've been seeking has always run from you. It's never been fulfilling. It's never brought you ultimate, everlasting joy. Let me say this, that thinking rightly can lead us to repentance, like what's happening here, right? He's thinking. Look at verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, he's saying to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's rehearsing what he's going to say. He's recognizing his need, and he's thinking rightly about all those things, right? We would say that's the right way to think. And thinking rightly can lead us to repentance, but right thinking alone is not repentance. Too many of us have seen sin in our lives, that have seen the sin. If you're, a, if you're one of the Lord's already, you've been brought into the family of God, you know the sin in your life and you think rightly about it. You hear a sermon and you go, yeah, I've got to stop that thing. Or yeah, I've got to quit that thing. But that's all we do is think about it. We don't actually take action. We don't actually do anything about it. You say, well, yeah, because the Lord is sovereign. He's the one that does all things. He's, he's doing this stuff in me, yes. And if he is, it will lead to action. If you've known the right things to do and you hear those things, you say, yes, you can agree internally. You can assent mentally to that thing, but you're no different than the demons when Jesus comes to them and they say that he is the son of God. You can assent to something thoughtfully and not really believe it. If you really believe it, it leads to action. In fact, that's what happens here, right? So biblical repentance always includes turning from sin. He turns away, but then what do we see happens? Look in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. So he left the land where he was. He turned away from those things, thinking it through, coming to himself, and now he's turned and he's come back to the father. That's what repentance is, to leave sin and leave the desires you've been going towards, leave the lifestyle you've been pursuing, and turn and pursue the Lord, right? He arose and came to the Father. Biblical repentance always includes coming to God. If you just stopped sinning, that one particular sin or those few particular sins, you were not really biblically repenting. Do we, do we understand it? You can't just stop doing something and it be biblical repentance. Repentance involves always coming to God, coming closer to the Father who made you and created you to be in relationship with Him. It's about relationship. We can't just have one piece of it. It's not about stopping so we're better people or so we're not haunted. The only way to find the fulfillment, to find the hope, is to turn and go to the one who is our hope. That's the only place. It's the only way. And it not only includes that turning from sin and coming to God, biblical repentance always includes confession of sin. Now, let me state this to a people with whom I have grown up, not in this particular church my whole life, 
but in this town, in the South, in the cultural Christianity we've all, in which we've all been steeped. There are many, many, many times that we have confessed a need for a Savior, and we've confessed that we need to turn from our ways and turn to the Lord, but how many times have we confessed our sin? To confess it means to say it out loud. Look at verse 20 and on. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He sees and understands the severity of his sinfulness. He says, because of what I have done, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He understands that because he is a sinner, he no longer deserves to be in the presence of his father as one who is his chosen son, but one who is a servant is what he's going to plea for, It's what he's been practicing. It always includes confession of sin. You will confess it to the Lord, and if you know what is good and right and healthy for you, you'll confess it to some brothers and sisters who can walk with you and hold you accountable. We are not meant to hold it to ourselves. One pastor who says a lot of things in ways that uh, make me think twice sometimes, he makes a statement somewhat, I'm going to butcher it right here, I don't have it written down, but he makes a statement somewhat like this. He says that people are impressed with our strengths, but people become connected to us over our weaknesses. When we confess our strengths to people, they see how good we are, and they give us glory. When people see our weaknesses and our problems, when we confess those things to them, they see the glory of the Lord, and they're drawn to him and to us in family and community. That's where the power is. He uses the weak things to shame the strong. Are we being the strong ones or are we being the weak ones? Because we're weak whether we realize it or not, right? Biblical repentance always includes coming to God, always includes confession of sin, turning away from it, confessing it, and biblical repentance always results in a changed life. It always results in a changed life. Now, we don't see the full story here, but we know that through all of Scripture. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Those who are bought and brought into the family of God will live that out. We see that if you're not sure about how that works, you need assurance of your salvation, just go and read the book, uh, the letter of First John, okay, in the back of the Bible. Just go and read that. What he says in the very end of that in chapter 5, verse 13, is that I write this to you so that you may know you have eternal life. It's a picture of this. It's not just like if I took a Polaroid of your one-time sin that you just committed again, oh, you must not be a a Christian. It's not about that. It's about do you look more like God now than you did a year ago? If we were filming you on video and watched that whole year, maybe in fast forward, right? Because most of our lives are pretty boring. If we put it in fast forward and watched it, we would see that towards the end of that year, we would look more like Christ than we did before. And on and on it would go. We'd have failures and ups and downs because we're not perfect, but we worship a perfect Savior. And we'd be fully brought through that and been forgiven and brought back into the family of God and ushered more towards him and more towards him and more towards him. It results in a changed life. You cannot say you're a believer in Christ when you do not change. It's impossible. There's no way. It cannot happen. There is no such thing as a God who loves you so much that he would give his son for you and then not change you. That's what, that's what reconciliation is. It's to change your state of being from not his to his. There, there is no, I can't say I love my child and not correct them and discipline them and love them and show mercy and grace, but also correctiveness. It doesn't happen. And if you say you love God, yet you never turn to him and really go to him, it's just words out of our mouths. 
So let us not fall into that trap. Because the path to everlasting joy and fulfillment is replete with repentance. It's over and over and over again. Martin Luther said that all of life is repentance for those who love Christ. It's a continual showing of our need, a continual pushing us in the Spirit to become more like Christ and to turn more towards Him in every aspect of our lives. But the good news is that this prodigal God is throwing us a party. And it's lavish. And everyone's invited. Everyone. You may be thinking, I'm not included. Yes, you're invited right now. Listen to how this works out. I'm going to say it like this. Let me give you the big points, right? We're all naturally proud and self-willed, and the path to everlasting joy is replete with repentance. We need that. We have to do that as turning from sin, coming to God, confessing our sin, living a changed life as all the evidence of that. And the prodigal God is throwing a party, and here's how it starts off. God is always ready to receive you, and he loves you. He loves you. Even if you're off in the distant land, look how the story goes. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This father is constantly just surveying the land. He's looking around and looking. Is that my son going to come back from this land? Is he he coming back? He's looking over the horizon. And he catches him and he knows him. Maybe he notices his gait because he loves the way he walks. Maybe he knows him because of the way in which he totters back and forth. Maybe he just knows that's direction and he's hoping when he first sets off running. What we know is his father says, he says he has compassion for him and he runs to him. Look at it again in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the same kid who said, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. Give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead. And the father sees him coming. And what does he do? He doesn't get mad in his heart about his arrival. He's looking, hoping for him. And he runs to him with compassion. And he sweeps him up and he kisses him and hugs him and embraces him. And immediately the son speaks in verse 21. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If you don't feel like that on a regular basis when confronted with your sin, we're not seeing the the severity of our depravity and our sinfulness. We must recognize what we are doing in trampling the blood of Christ. That he gave everything for us, right? Right? And the son blurts it out to see that. And that's part of the process when you repent and come to the Lord. But look how the father responds. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. The father looks at him, sees him, runs, hugs him. And as the son speaks, it's almost like he wipes it away and just says, let's have a party. Go get the stuff ready. Come and bring the robe for my son and the ring to show him that he's mine. He's my son. He's brought into my family again. He's come back. Look at it. Verse 23, right? And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The son has returned. Let us celebrate. He was dead and he's alive. This is crazy wordage that Christ is using in this story. It's the same wordage that we see all throughout Scripture. That dead in our trespasses and he makes us alive. That we need to be born again. 
that we have a need greater than ourselves and we cannot do it, but he's done it all for us in Christ Jesus on the cross. He paid all the debt we owe. He paid for all of our sins and the punishment of the wrath of God being poured out of him on the cross. And he drank it all down so that we might be brought into the family. He died in our place so we could be brought in and be made alive forever with him. He's done it all. He's made it right. And he looks at us and says, you are mine. You're back. I love you and I've missed you. Come in. We're going to have a party. Look, this is how it works for you. If you're thinking, man, God loves me, he's ready to receive me. Yes, he forgives you instantly, instantly. In verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. He clothes you in the righteousness of Christ, even though you have no righteousness of your own. And he covers you with the goodness of Jesus because Jesus' blood was good enough to pay the price. So that when he looks at you, he sees the perfect, perfect righteousness of Christ his son. He forgives you instantly. Psalm 86.5 tells us, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Just like the son called upon the father, he forgives him. And he calls upon you today as you're hearing this message. And he says, I love you. I want you. I want to forgive you. Come back to me. Come to me. Pay it all out to me. No, I paid it all out in my son Jesus. God also justifies you instantly. He makes you right. You've done no more wrong. He adopts you instantly. The ring put on the finger means that you are his son. The same as this young man. And then God throws a party for the pardoned. He throws a party, church. This is a place where we celebrate what God has been doing in and around us and through us. And he's throwing a party and we get to be invited into it. Once a week we come and celebrate with the Lord what he's already done and what he's going to do. We celebrate who God is, what he's done in the past, and what he's going to do in the future. And we celebrate, and we celebrate, and we celebrate. Too often, though, brothers and sisters, I feel like we're being like the older brother. And not partying like it's 1999. I feel like we're not partying, we're not celebrating, we're not seeing. And the reason is because we don't understand. We don't get the fullness of it. If every day we started on our face asking God to reveal to us our sin and how each one of those sins demanded our justice being done to us and our being separated from the love of the Father forever under his wrath. And then we were able to see the grace of Christ given to us by his death on the cross in our place. And we saw the beauty and majesty of the one who's worth more than all of creation dying for us. It would change how we live. It would change how we gather. It would change how we sing. Maybe the problem is that we don't start that day and we don't continue. We don't get together and start off by praying, Lord, reveal to me my need. Reveal to me your grace and help me to worship you rightly. Because worshiping him rightly is not just lifting our voice alone. It's not. It's lifting our hearts, everything that we are inside. You may not raise your hands, but you should be lit on fire from the inside out because of the greatness of God. That's the way it works. And if we're not, it's because of us, not because of him. It's never because of him that our lack of worship and enjoyment in him. And he is a wealth of it. Just run back home to him. Every day we need to return to him in that way and repent and believe. And notice that God doesn't chastise his son when he arrives, but he's filled with joy at his return. People break through these doors for the first time in a long time. The first words of our mouth should be, man, we're so glad you're here. Embrace, unless you're one of those awkward embracers, right? That holds too long. 
and celebrate. Tell them, we're glad you're here. Let me show you where to go. Come on, let's go. Even if you're not on the greeter team. Because we're excited because we're at a party. The prodigal God's throwing a party and everybody's invited. All right, church, you ready for it? About to get real serious again. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. Let that sink in for a second. (laughs) For us Baptists, right? (laughs) And he heard music and dancing. Not dancing in the club, dancing in celebration. Still dancing. (laughs) And he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Listen, church, God desires all to repent, even the self-righteous. Even the self-righteous. Listen, if you go back and read chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he goes through these stories. And at the end of this story, what do we see him saying? Look, these many years I've served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. It's the same thing. He's talking to the religious leaders. He's saying, you're the elder brother. We're like, that's not us. That's the Pharisees. That's who we often tend to become. Right? They don't recognize their sinfulness They don't recognize their need. They don't recognize the grace that's offered. They don't get excited about things anymore. They're not dancing at the party. They're not coming into the party to celebrate the one who was lost and now is found. Sounds a lot like churches we know. I'm included, brothers and sisters. The self-righteous are often revealed by their sins of attitude. Right, this, this other young guy with sins of action, running off with the money and spending it all out and living in a, in a licentious way. But the elder brother's sins are revealed in his attitude, right? Look at how he talks. He was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, not I've loved you because you love me. He said, look how I've served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He's like, you want to give me a goat? You gave him a fatted calf? But when the son of yours came, he wouldn't even call him his brother. He's not even acting like he's connected with his father, right? When the son of yours came who's devoured your property, it's his property too, right? He's not saying that. He's saying your property. 
He's disassociating himself because he's mad, because he's bitter. Look, all too often, we in the church desire to do things for God, ultimately to get things from God, and not just to get God himself. All too often, we decide to do things for God to get things from God. We want to make him happy so that he'll keep us in good places. And when it goes well for somebody else, we can get bitter. Or when it doesn't go well for us, we can get bitter. Our pride and self-will eventually lead us to bitterness and emptiness. Remember, we are all naturally proud and self-willed. J.C. Ryle says this, and this, by the way, is insanity, by the way, when I say that, right? It's insanity. You know the grace. We know the grace. I know the grace. And yet we still get bitter about it. If somebody else gets blessed and it gets a party instead of us. J.C. Ryle, he says, this, after all, is the question that concerns us most. The man who can take deep interest in politics or field sports or money-making or farming, but none in the conversion of souls is no true Christian. He is himself dead and must be made alive again. He is himself lost and must be found. You see what he's saying? If you can go through all the motions of religion and yet not really care enough to be actively caring about people that are lost, he's saying you're probably not a Christian. And he's not alone. I just picked his, his particular statement. All throughout history, those statements have made from Augustine and the early church fathers down to, the, to, to Jesus' words talking about over and over again. We look at it. His will, his desires are seeking to save the lost, and we're made into his image. He loved us so much, he stepped out of eternity. We're made into his image, being remade into that image. And if it's not our desire to see the lost come to faith, woe to us, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to us. And you may say, I don't know how. That's okay, we'll help you know how. That's what our jobs are. You know what that is? The staff's jobs here is not to get up and preach every day. Well, we do that too as part of it. The bigger job in Scripture is to pray for the church, to preach the Word, and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what our job is. And if you feel like you don't know, you let me know, and we will fix that wrong. We'll make it right. We are here for you. You'll be seeing stuff like this roll out. There are changes coming, brothers and sisters. We're not in a bad way, not something to be worried about. We're going to do things in order to help us accomplish the goal that God has called us to, to seek and to save the law. That's what we're going to do. And it's a party. And man, if you're wondering why people may come here and sometimes leave and not come back, maybe that day it didn't feel too much like a party. Right? Nobody likes going to funerals. We go to them because we should, not because we want to. And that's what people do with church sometimes. They should walk in here and sense a party. They should sense in you as you speak to them that you've been saved by grace. Right? They should look at me and speak to me and not see somebody that knows a bunch of stuff, but one who knows the Savior. That's how it should be. So let me ask some questions as we bring this to a close. Maybe you don't know if you're one of those elder brother types. Do you get angry because your service isn't celebrated? Do you get angry when people don't notice your service? Do you become bitter because your obedience isn't recognized? I mean, look at all the stuff I do. Look at all the things that I've done. Why aren't you letting me do X, Y, Z? Why aren't you asking me to do X, Y, Z? Why doesn't somebody say thank you to me? Right? Let me ask the question, why do you serve? Why are you obedient? It's not to get from God, it's to, to love him back because he first loved us. Do you, listen to this one, listen real careful before we put it away, listen, listen. Do you think and speak of others in the church as outsiders? Are there people in this church and when you see them come in, do you think of them and do you speak of them as, as people that are outside of your inner circle? 
If so, that's what the elder brother's doing. That's what the Pharisees and scribes were doing. Here's a hard one. Are you finding your joy in your preferences, or are you finding joy in the found? And are you finding your joy in your preferences, or are you finding your joy in the found and the finder, right? That's a great question for us to ask ourselves whenever we feel bitterness or heartache. The prodigal God's throwing a party and everyone's invited. Look, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. Before I do, let me make a plea. In a room this large with this many people, there has to be someone here whom the Lord is working in your heart to show you today that you have not repented and believed in him and become one of his. There, statistically speaking, it would be impossible for one person to be in, not in this room who does not know Jesus. There has to be somebody in this room whom the Lord is working in today, has brought you here today to hear this message. Maybe you're the prodigal, maybe you're the elder brother. Both need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And maybe you've never come to him before. Maybe you've come to him a thousand times. You need to come back to him today. But there's somebody in this room, I guarantee it statistically, that needs Jesus for the first time, needs to repent and believe in Christ. Peter says in one of his letters, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that should all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So I beseech you, brother, sister, those who have not repented or will not repent, to repent now because we do not know when the return of Christ will come. Today is the day that he's calling you to repentance. And any other day that you hear the gospel, see the gospel, read the gospel, know it in your heart. It's a day to repent. And I beg you to repent before the Lord returns, for he is coming. We don't know when. We don't know exactly how it will happen and when it will happen, but we know it will happen, and it will be too late. And he'll say, depart from me, those who did not know me. I never knew you. You did all this stuff in my name, and you were not mine. But instead, he could call unto you and say, my son, and embrace you, my daughter, and embrace you, and kiss you, and say, you are mine. Prepare the party, because we're about to throw down. Please give over to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord today. Do not let us weep at your funeral. Do not let us weep because when we face the judgment day, we will only praise him for doing what is right. That sounds crazy to us. He is right to bring judgment. And he has gone beyond rightness and become benevolent in giving us Jesus so that you can avoid that judgment. So would you turn to him today? Turn to him and give him praise and glory, for he alone deserves it. Lord, we ask now that you would work in our hearts, that you would change us and shape us in the image of Christ, and that we would love you and love you more than we love self, and that we would love you and repent of any self-righteousness, repent of any seeking others or other things to find our joy, for you alone hold the key to everlasting joy and is found in the person and work of your son Jesus on the cross in our place, who died for our sins so that we might be brought into your family. Lord, I beg you today to bring people to faith. And for those of us who know you, that you would draw us back once again to you, that we might repent of our sin and believe on your son Jesus. As we sing these songs, Lord, that you would draw our heart to you, that we would praise you and glory in your name, and that you would bring us to your feet, that we might experience joy beyond understanding. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.